it is more than twice as long. It includes a lot more DM-focused material, whereas Wayfinders is primarily player-focused. Uh, it includes, you know, we are not advancing the timeline. It is still, we're still starting at 998, but there is a lot of things in um, uh, Rising that, that sort of haven't been presented in uh, official source books before. A lot more sort of, I you know, tables of ideas and uh, very much sort of actionable things. You can just sit down and say, okay, this is interesting that, uh, you know, the morning is a thing, but what's something I can do with that right away? And so a lot of just trying to draw on things for inspiration and saying, Lords of Dust, let's give you a dozen ideas for adventure scenes using the Lords of Dust. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely very happy to, to have it both coming out, uh, both accessible in the DMs guild, and this is something I'll talk about a little later in the thing, is that I'm also working on more content for the DMs guild myself, uh, but also that it will be accessible to uh, a new audience. So with 5th edition, since it came out first with 3.5, if my memory does mm -hmm. not fail me, mm -hmm. what should we expect to be different between 3.5 and fifth, either mechanically or lore-wise. Right. Uh, so again, as I said, we're not advancing the timeline. It is still the same world. Uh, the book does explore certain concepts in a little more depth. I will say there's a significant section on the Mornland uh, that goes into that in more detail than before, uh, specifically with that idea of the Mornland, for those again who don't know uh, the setting, part of one of the main themes of Eberron is the idea that the continent of Corvair has just gotten out of a brutal civil war that lasted for decades. And this book will certainly explore further the impact of the war, both uh, physically and psychologically, uh, on the continent. The war ends with a terrible disaster called the Morning. And Rising definitely, as I said, goes deeper into the Mornland and into providing lots of ideas and inspirations and sort of hands-on things for what's an adventure look like uh, in the Mornland, uh, which a lot of books have sort of said, oh, it's there and it's spooky, but haven't really actually given you much to work with, and so this will. Um, it also includes a new version of the Artificer, uh, which I think is the first official core class uh, to be released in a hardcover since the main books for 5th edition. Uh, that's gone through a lot of different versions. Uh, I will say I like the version that it has ended up as more than the 4th edition version. I never really felt the 4th edition Artificer really captured the idea of the class, and uh, I'm more excited about the 5th edition version. Uh, I will also say that all of the core races, Kalistar, uh, Shifters, Changelings, Warforged, uh, are covered in Rising and are different than Wayfinders. I expect that Wayfinders will be updated to include those changes, but basically they have responded to playtest feedback and things like that. Uh, so sort of all of those are continuing uh, to evolve. Um, I can probably get away with saying that Rising also does uh, include a little more of the fact that some of the traditionally monstrous races, such as goblins, 
uh, are more parts of the world in Eberron and that uh, it includes more support for those races as player characters. Um, yeah. I was going to say, okay, so in addition to the updates that the artificer is getting in all, mm -hmm. pretty much all the races and classes, are there any new ones we might be seeing? Uh, as I said, there's more support for goblins and a few of the other monstrous races. There's no 100% there's a new race that you've never actually heard of. Um, it is, of course, also the other big thing that does tie into that is that dragon marks are revised and covered. And it is following the same model as the Wayfinder's Guide, where dragon marks are fundamentally presented as, you know, mechanically presented as sub-races. Uh, and there again, things have evolved since the release last year, uh, but I'm still very happy with just how mechanically that works out. Um, so in a sense, there's 13 new races. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah. And you talked about you know some of the mechanics about the different characters. So with from you know three point five to five E, with everyone you like to do more kind of mundane magic, sort of make you more involved in the world like we have besides. And then you also talked last year about it being very swashbuckling. Mm -hmm. Does the you know, as a lot of people talk about five E being more streamlined, does that allow for more swashbuckling and mundane magic? Or does it make it harder? So it was certainly a question when it was first announced that we were doing Eberron for 5th edition. One of the issues was 5th edition was seen as a lower magic overall than some of the previous ones. Uh, I will say that Rising does include, you know, more thoughts on item creation. Uh, you know, again, with the role of the artificer, both the artificer itself both the idea of item creation uh, and the idea, again, of common magic are all things that are supported in that. And sort of originally with Eberron, we were saying, well, you're just kind of trying to adapt what's there. And because this is now its own book, there is room to focus on that and to expand that role a little bit. Um, with swashbuckling, I don't feel like the mechanics have changed particularly to incorporate that, but we do include things like I did in Wayfinder's Guide of just what are a couple ideas, what are suggestions. You know, it's certainly discussed as this is one of the themes of the setting and how do you bring that to the table. Uh, but I don't believe, you know, thinking about it that that's because there's a lot of new rules. It's just suggestions as to what you can do uh, with the rules that exist there. But it certainly talks both about the noir and the pulp aspects of it and how do you, uh, you know, play into that. I can also say, uh, because it is something that has been announced, you know, sort of in the book description, uh, that it also includes a concept of group patrons. And the idea of group patrons is very much uh, sort of having a theme for a party of adventurers, uh, of essentially from the start being able to say, well, maybe we all work for an inquisitive agency, or maybe we're reporting to the Kornberg Chronicle, or maybe we're part of the Red Cloak Battalion, and we're in a, you know, an elite special ops unit for Brayland. 
Um, and so it's sort of like backgrounds for characters, but the idea is these are backgrounds for your whole party with then suggestions as to what could that mean for a campaign, for adventurers, what sort of resources does this give you, uh, and a lot of ideas there. And uh, someone was just asking me over Twitter the other day, well, okay, I'm just starting an Eberron campaign, where do I start? And that's part of what the uh, group of patrons are about, is just saying, well, here's you know 12 different ideas that could form the foundation of a campaign. Um, and so I think that's something that, that I'm very sort of interested to see what people think of. And it's not, it's a concept that could be used in any campaign, uh, but it's something that I think works well in Emberon. I think that's really cool too, because I always have the problem as a DM trying to figure out how to get my players to meet each other or to know each other ahead of time without it being too corny and too cheesy. So I think that's a really cool addition. And, and that's basically exactly the idea, is it's just saying here's ways to not just be meeting in a tavern, but also stopping and saying, but let's look at a whole bunch of different ideas for groups and how those would be different campaigns. That, you know, if you want to actually be part of the Bornmore clan and essentially do uh, The Sopranos in Eberron, you know, that's certainly a valid campaign you could run. Uh, but that would be very different from being, you know, your hard, uh, you know, investigative reporters for the Goldberg Chronicle, you know. I imagine that also makes it a little bit easier to, like, narrate certain, you know, swashbuckling episodes, because if you're a party that doesn't really know each other yet, then why would you have those sort of things set up? But in this kind of scenario, you can have that, like, Wonder Woman shield moment where they leap off right. the shield. And, you know, I will say that the group patrons is a starting point and it gives a number of ideas. To me, there are, of course, many different campaign themes that you can explore that aren't necessarily uh, there. I don't remember if I mentioned it last year, but, you know, I've been running a campaign set in uh, the nation of Kabara, uh, which is basically fantasy western. And it's essentially Deadwood and Eberron. And part of the point of that campaign is that I didn't have the players, the characters know each other, but I started off by saying, why are you in this town? That this is a small town that's just starting off. Uh, it needs a sheriff. It needs a preacher. You know, if one of you wants to take that job, then that's your stake in the town. Uh, if not, I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to fill those roles with NPCs. And so as part of an interesting thing of the characters didn't know each other, but they all had this important stake of their own. You know, there was something that mattered to them all. And so as the adventurers, you know, I, with, over the course of each adventure, as the town grows, as their investment grows, that sort of brings them together, even though some of them have different goals and different things that matter to them. They have to find common ground. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And so Everon 5th edition is coming out in November, right? Yes, mid-November. All right, and you've got something else coming out a little bit after that. I do. So I am working on a book called, uh, which I have been calling Project Raptor, and that is a joke because I said I was working on a book, and people were like, it's going to be 300 pages of dinosaurs? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, of course it is. Uh, I will go ahead and say, now that we're getting closer to release, that it's actually going to be called Exploring Eberron. Uh, and 
happened basically for the last uh, 15 years. You know, this is 15 years of Eberron now. Uh, until last year, only wizards could produce uh, Eberron material. And even going into fourth edition, even now with Rising, when you're just getting a single Eberron book, there are things that it has to cover. You know, the basics have to be there. Yet, over all this time, there's a lot of subjects in Eberron that I've always wanted to explore in more depth that there's never been an opportunity to. So, you know, one of the big examples to me is the planes. That from the very beginning, we established that Eberron has its own unique cosmology that is different from the Great Wheel. And yet we've never really given you more than a paragraph on each plane. And so I can say that in exploring Eberron, uh, there's going to be a much larger section on the planes that is geared both with the possibility of if you actually adventured in this plane, what would that be like? But also how do the planes affect everyday life? You have manifest zones, you have coterminous periods, you have the question of what could bring someone from that plane to Eberron. Uh, and so basically, it will actually be, this is all sorts of ways for the planes to matter in your game and to really get into what are they? Like, how do they differ? How is Fermia not just the elemental plane of fire? Uh, and things like that. Uh, another topic that we're exploring in depth so to speak, is the oceans. Uh, because from the very beginning, my original submission for Eberron had more developed aquatic cultures with the idea that if you have Merfolk, if you have Sawagin, then there should be nations in the oceans. And if there's nations in the oceans, what are their relationships with the surface? And that to me, this was another of those points of this is a logical consequence of something that exists in D&D that generally gets ignored. And so uh, exploring everyone, that is another thing it will be exploring. Um, beyond that, there's a lot of other topics that, again, are of great interest to me that we just haven't gotten to in depth. Uh, I will, over the next couple of months, be posting more previews uh, on my website, uh, keithbaker.com, um, and talking more about the subjects that will be in there. But basically, it's going to be an unofficial book. It will come out on the DM scale, but it should also be print on demand. Probably at this point, I'm thinking early December. It won't be exactly timed with, uh, with Rising from the Last War, but it will still be around that same time. And as I said, to me, this is an opportunity to really dig into a lot of the things that I've always wanted to write about, but that there's never been an opportunity. So I hope you'll get to see a lot of things people are curious about. So it sounds like that will be all of the new lore that won't be from in the... Yeah, so, so that's exactly the thing, is that it is true that Rising from the Last War does largely revisit the same topics you've seen before, though in some cases, as I said, going into more depth or exploring them from a more hands-on, okay, we all know what House Tarkanen is, but what are a bunch of ideas for how I could use it tonight? Um, so I do think Rising will give you some things that you haven't seen before, but are still on the familiar topics. Uh, whereas exploring uh, Eberron is finally going to dig into a lot of things that I feel have never been 
explored in the depth that I'd like them to be. So yeah, it won't be entirely new. I mean, taking what the aquatic stuff is, but you know, the planes, the planes have always been there. We've just never actually known what to do with them. And I want to finally deal with that. Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we open it up to questions? Uh, no, frankly, I want to hear what people want to talk about. So right. let's There's have some questions. There's a lot of you, so let's see. Do you want to do it my way or can raise? I don't care. Uh, well, we've got like long distance yeah, stuff, so let's, let's do that. All right, all the way in the, all the, way in the back. The film, yes. Hello. Uh, I'm going to project because I don't know where the microphone is. Smart. You're doing a great job of projecting, though. I got to say. Thank you, room leads. I'm a very loud person. <laughs> Hello. Uh, oh, you per what? Per no. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're doing good project. This differs, of course, between uh, rising from the last war and what I'll be doing in exploring Ebron. And the question is, what can we do with the planes? Uh, and to me, you know, the short answer is we don't have to view them as tiny. You know, this is the point that with exploring Eberron, what I want to do is is explore exactly the sort of questions that were answered of and were asked of if we have elementals. Hey, you know, maybe we can make a motor out of them. Uh, what I want to do is do that same thing with the rest of the planes. One of the things that we've sort of hinted at, but not gotten into depth, is within the world you have manifest zones, which are places where the influence of the planes bleeds through into the world. And that part of the point is Sharn, the City of Towers, only exists because it is built on a manifest zone to Serenia, and that you literally cannot build towers that high in a normal space because they would collapse. And what we want to really be calling out is that most of the major cities of Eberron are built on manifest zones because those are natural resources. That a manifest zone gives you access to something that you can't find anywhere else and that the idea is over time people have learned to harness these things. And so part of what I want to do with exploring is talking about all of the planes. Like, what does it mean to have a manifest zone to Lumania, and where will you see that in the world? You know, basically, that's going to be your, your heartland breadbasket, because things are going to be much more fertile and uh, vegetation will grow. So you should find that, uh, you know, wherever you find those, is that will be the most thriving farmlands. Um, and so part of it is I want to say that even in that smaller space, 
we want to delve deeper into how do these things affect the world and how they've been affecting the world. Now, going into rising from the last war, uh, you know, one of the things is that it is important to wizards to be able to have everyone fit within the multiverse, and that it's important to them to be able to say it is technically possible to get from Faerun to Eberron. Um, how we are handling that is by saying that Eberron's cosmology exists as it always has, but that it is an isolated pocket of the multiverse. That essentially when it was created, whether you feel that was a uh, you know, completely natural Big Bang or whether the progenitor dragons really did sculpt it from the ether, uh, that it was walled off and sort of hidden uh, from all the powers of the, the rest of the multiverse. And so in doing that, we are saying we want it to be, if you want to use Asmodeus in your Eberron campaign, you can. Uh, but what I suggest is saying that he's literally just found this place and been like, what's going on over here? Look at this little corner I've never seen before. Uh, so, because that's another principle of Eberron is consider things that have always existed one way, how can you do something different with them? Even if you are going to use one of the main villains from another setting, well, can you do it different? What is it like if Asmodeus has just found this place rather than having been here for thousands of years? Um, and that's always something I would like to consider. I'm not sure that really covered the question, but uh, hopefully it helped at least somewhat. So let's take something else. We have a question over here, second. All right, I'm gonna, you, you can pick questions. All right, that works. You go, because I saw your hand before. Hi, everybody. Uh, oh, it's, we well, it's right test, but yeah, I'll talk from over here because my voice is extraordinarily loud, and this is my inside voice. So right. uh, if I speak up, I'd probably blow eardrums. Um, so my question is, uh, from the rising of the last war, are we going to be able to see future potential campaign settings get produced out of this? Because one thing I've started discovering with my party, I've been playing for 14 years, mostly we've like figured stuff out along the way, but we started getting into some campaign settings and being able to really dive into that with just like getting that like guided tour through Waterdeep, the Council of Dragons and the Rise of Tiamat. Well, will we possibly get to see something like that with Eberron future down the line? Okay, so what you're saying is, just to make sure I understand the question, is saying like, could we see something like uh, like Rise of Tiamat in Eberron? Yeah. Uh, so a campaign, you know, arc, uh, as it were. Uh, I don't know. What I do know is that there is, I know at GameholeCon in November, they are launching an Adventurers League season set in everyone. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, like, is that something that could come out as a print book, the way that, uh, you know, Dragon Heist or those books have? Uh, but I at least know that they are making, like, Wizards is producing an Eberron campaign, you know, arc uh, that will be starting in November, for at least for the Adventurers League. Um, beyond that, basically, I think what it fundamentally comes down to is sales. You know, uh, Wizards is a big corporation, and I feel there's no question that we are getting rising from the last war because of the response to Wayfinder's Guide. And I think the response to rising of the last war will determine, do they do more? Uh, or do they feel like, okay, that covered it, and uh, you know, we're good. Um, so we'll see, but again, Really, it comes down to do people like it? Uh, 
I'm going to start with you because uh, I saw you before. Um, I, I think this kind of runs into the last question about like, you know, add-on supplements, but um, I fell in love with all the novels back in the day with like 3.5. Yeah. Yep, yep. Any chance you're going to be writing anything in the so, future? So, you know, again, the question being, could we get more everyone fiction? The answer is, I don't know because it's not up to me. Um, I would love to. I, I'd love to do more with uh, Lane Pierce uh, from the Dreaming Dark books. Uh, there were certainly more stories I planned with Thorne. Um, and so basically the issue is right now, there's no sign that Wizards is looking to produce more uh, novels. And right now the, the DMs Guild doesn't allow you to produce just straight fiction. Uh, and so basically at the moment, that's not something that's happening. Uh, if it ever does, I know I would like to write more, and I know a number of the other, you know, Eberron authors from back in the day would certainly like to write more. So fingers crossed, and certainly, you know, ask that question to at Wizards D and D, you know, every five minutes, and you know, <laughs> let them know that you're interested. My question, uh, well, I actually have two, but one can be answered in one word. So you mentioned that most major cities were built on manifest zones. What manifest zone was Metro built on? Uh, see, that's a good question. I don't have it off the top of my head. I would have Ooh, to think about it. Interesting. Now, but my main question, you mentioned in having in the original plan written about undersea cultures and heavily written into that, Given that until Eberron came around, my favorite setting of all time had been the second edition setting, uh, Sea of Fallen Stars, which was an add-on for uh, Faerun that explored the, well, the geography just described. What sort of politics and interplay between the Undersea and the and Corvair were you originally intending? Uh, well, certainly part of the point to me is that once you get into settled races, and this is the thing of first off trying to look at each culture, you know, basically look at something like merfolk and say, well, they're not necessarily just going to build a nation the way humans would build nations. Uh, and on the other hand, the Sawagan might, you know, and so first off there's that question of what's the dominant species of a particular territory, what does their culture look like? And then how is that culture going to interact with the outside world? It's certainly the case to me that uh, looking to, I think it's the Thunder Sea that lies between uh, Southern Corvair and Zendrik, which uh, in my view has always been the terrain of the Swagan, to me that definitely is a passing through that is just like passing through any other nation you have to have. Uh, basically, you know, letters of transit, so to speak. You have to be making, you know, have an agreement, which to some degree the nations are making, that it's essentially Brayland has an arrangement uh, with the Sarland. And, uh, but then also that internal politics, again, it's not just one giant ocean-wide uh, nation itself, so that depending where you're going, you're going to have to potentially be negotiating. There is a scene in the book um, the Shattered Lands, where basically the ship that's going to Zendrik takes on a Suwagan emissary uh, and basically has to sort of make an arrangement there. And I will say that part of the original design of Sharn 
was that Sharn had a district that was underwater, uh, that had a segment with a permanent area water spell that basically was, you want to go negotiate with the merfolk, you've got to go down there and do it. And that was something that got taken out because they didn't want to really delve into uh, the oceans. It's possible, we'll re you know, I'll consider if I want to sneak that back in and explore it, and we'll see. Um, Please do. Yeah, yes. so, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, so, um, I'm a 3.5 player, mostly, and my impression of the way 5th edition handles magic items is that you have sort of, you know, up to a certain level, you've got some cool stuff that is kind of, you know, low level, but there's no real uh, economy for it past a certain point. It's just like, oh, you found this legendary thing, and it's like a unique or, you know, rare or whatever. Um, but Eberron has people producing magic items and selling them and, and so uh, is this book going to have rules for actually implementing a magic economy in 5th edition and you want to tell us how, a little bit about it or anything like that? So Rising certainly does and uh, I can't go into huge detail because it wasn't the section I sort of personally delved into. It does get into um, sort of building on what existed in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which was, again, a system in place for how you create magic items, uh, downtime activities for selling or purchasing. And so it expands on that. Uh, it is still the case that I would say, and I, again, this is just me not being able to remember off the top of my head, I do think that they're still trying to, to fit to the idea of, of, you know, we've always said in Eberron, there's a degree to which magic is common that it's wide magic, not high magic. And so part of that is, I don't know, for example, if you can make legendary items, that I think they may just be saying, that's what makes them legendary, is that this is beyond the level of science that we have available. And that even goes to 3.5 Eberron of technically, someone can make an item with a caster level of 20, but that depends if you have something with a caster level of 20. Um, so, as I said, it's certainly there is a system in place for this is what it you know this is what it takes to make a rare magic item, uh, and these are the circumstances under which you could expect to buy one, um, and that that's there because of that idea of their of magic being part of the economy. But I can't really go into much more detail than that, other than say it's definitely covered. Uh, yeah, Somewhat over here, but. Let's go all the way over and we'll work our way uh, over to the yellow shirt. Yeah. Um, in what ways are, I imagine this will be more exploring Eberron than anything else. Um, in what ways are you going to be expanding the pantheon of Eberron? Uh, so, do you mean expanding the pantheon or do you mean expanding and providing more detail? I think, I think more expanding detail on the yeah. Pantheon. All right. Although, if you're going to be expanding the Pantheon, that would be good to know, too. So, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, there's a couple different things. You know, one of the things I would say is, yeah, at the moment, oh, we'll come back to that. Um, certainly, Rising goes into the, the core religions of Eberron, and I've tried to make it a little more hands-on. 
uh, in the sense, and this is something I started with Wayfinders, uh, you know, is more that idea of let's take these in the way that a paladin's oath has a little statement of these are the things you try to do. Trying to actually say, well, what is that for the blood of all? What is that for the silver flame? So that we actually concretely, you are a player whose character follows this faith. Here's three things that you should be keeping in mind, you know, if we sum this down. Certainly Rising goes into more detail about things like what are some common rituals? What are, uh, you know, if you go into a temple of the sovereign host, what does it look like? You know, like just some more trappings, if that goes to me. I will definitely also be going into more depth on these things in uh, exploring. Uh, especially, you now there, of course, you'll be getting my take. So, like, I have a slightly different take on the Blood of All than we've seen before. I will also say, uh, we haven't talked about this much, but in Rising in particular, I really want to break down the Cults of the Dragon Below in a little more detail. That basically actually talking about each of the major Dalkir and a number of the major overlords of what does a cult of uh, Solkitesh look like. And again, in ways both for the DM, if I wanted to use these as antagonists, but also if I'm a warlock and I want to be have my patron to be Solkitesh, what does that look like? Um, so that's definitely something that I could say that's going to go into more detail than we've ever seen before, especially to the Dalkir, how Belashira's cult is very different from during the Corruptor's cult. Uh, whereas I don't think we've even mentioned during the Corruptor in you know much of our previous books. Um, and so that's where I'm saying we're not expanding the Pantheon because those things have always been there. But I am going to, with the Overlords and Dalkir in particular, go into a little more depth than we ever have before. Thank you. All right, I think what we're going to do is bounce back and forth. So we'll get back to you in a moment. But we'll go over here and go all the way back. Uh, you right there in the glasses. Oh, and we're going to keep we're going to keep our poor guy. <laughs> Sorry, uh, just trying to get those steps in. Will we have any more official material on Kyber? Uh, so that is a good question. I don't feel Rising definitely digs much deeper into the Mornland than uh, than it has, but I don't know that it goes much uh, much deeper into Kyber. Certainly, there's a couple new important plot elements that basically we go into a little more depth with the Dalkir and uh, and sort of give them a slightly bigger, more active role in the world uh, than just being off in the Shadow Marches having trouble with Orc Druids. Uh, but at the same time, as I said, I don't feel like there's a ton of detail on Kyber itself. Um, I think it's a great possibility for something for the DMs Guild, or the question is, it all depends on how well Rising does, if they were to go further from there. Uh, I think that's definitely a possible, you know, a good topic. But unfortunately, like I said, I don't think there's a lot, uh, you know, directly in there now. Green. Yes? Yes. Uh, so, uh, as someone... I've always been interested in uh, class design, and I was wondering if you had any insights into what uh, what missteps did you think the fourth edition version of the uh, Artificer made, and how what does uh, what uh, was handled better in the fifth edition? Right. Like, sure. Okay. Uh, now, I will say that the Artificer in fifth edition is something that was largely designed in house at Wizards of the Coast. So, uh, so I'm just saying it's not something that was primarily in my hands. 
I will say what I didn't like about the fourth edition Artificer is to me one of the primary elements of the Artificer is that they are essentially, a wizard is learning spells from a book. They are learning to perform rituals. To me, the Artificer is someone who is more of, so to speak, a hacker. That it is like they understand the way magic works and they are putting stuff together. And so this was exemplified in third edition by the spell, spell uh, the infusion spell store and item, where a wizard and an artificer could just put together a one-use item of basically almost any spell of up to third level. It's like they can make a one-use wand. Um, and it was that idea that I don't have every spell available, but give me 10 minutes and I'll put something together that is the thing we need for this situation. Um, and that also tied to weapon and armor augmentation were two of their abilities. And it was that sense that the, the artificer is about making the right tool for the job, whereas the wizard is, these are the spells I have available at this moment. And fourth edition, the artificer was, by the nature of fourth edition, had a more static set of abilities and was more sort of framed as a support class. And that was fine, but it wasn't how I saw it. To me, creativity has to be part of the Artificer. And that was one of the problems with the first fifth edition version of the Artificer uh, that had the gunsmith and things like that, is it was designed where you did a very few things very reliably. And to me, I'm like, that's not the Artificer. The Artificer is the person who can come up with all sorts of things, but potentially unreliably. Uh, and I feel that this current version still is not ideal as, as I would like it, uh, but it does have more of that sense of I am making magic items on the spot for what we need, you know, that I am someone who feels like I'm creative. Uh, the last thing I'll say is I think it comes to me of one of the things I really liked about the first Iron Man movie was that to me they emphasized that part of what makes Tony Stark cool is he's an inventor. Like he's actually making this stuff. And that with the fifth edition Artificer, we at least get a little more of that sense of I am someone who is create, actively creative rather than just being, so to speak, a scholar. Does that make sense? Right. Baseball hat. That's you. Yep. Hi. So as a creative, what do you do to keep the... Uh, creative momentum going? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, to me, part of it is just engaging with all of you. Uh, you know, I do try to be active on my website, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, just because part of it is seeing the things that interest other people and the questions that people raise helps keep the world new and fresh in my mind as well because that's always going to make me think about questions that I've just never thought about before. Um, and to me, you know, one of my favorite sort of thought exercises is always just picking something and thinking about what is the impact this should have. You know, randomly thinking about, again, going back to, you know, a tiny example, but if we have trolls, if trolls regenerate, why aren't people eating them? Um, well, yes, and you know, the obvious answer is because you eat a troll sausage and it grows in your stomach and soon the troll bursts out and that's terrible. Uh, in Droam, they figured out a way to handle that. So, you know, Droam, they, they live on troll sausage. 
Um, but that's the kind of point of taking anything that's a standard D&D thing and just stopping to think of if this thing existed. We've got Medusas. Medusas petrify. You know, coming to that point of if we had a society of Medusas, what could they do with that as a tool? And, you know, the answer would be like, oh, cryogenics. You know, someone's really sick and you don't have a cleric, petrify them. I'll petrify them when you need, you know, when you've got the cleric around. You know, but just trying to stop and think of those things of if you had X, what could you do with it that we haven't been doing in its classic presentation? And that I always just find a fun exercise. Uh, we're just going to go, we're going to go way in the back. Uh, pink shirt. Or pinkish it looks like. So one of the things I, and I know this primarily, uh, I'll, I'll say loud. Uh, I can hear it. So I, I know this primary, primarily attributes to prestige classes in 3.5, but one of the things I really liked about everyone 3.5 was the custom ability of a warforge or a shifter or a yeah. you really take it and make it something very unique. Yeah. Part of that was, you know, for the story of, of your campaign, but also just, you know, make it a very unique class. I know that's kind of gone in fifth edition, but what are you trying to do to bring, are there, is there anything you're trying to do to bring some of those elements back? Well, I mean, you know, one of the questions is how do we keep the idea of the flexibility and such that you had, especially with races like the Shifters and the Warforged, uh, that in 3.5 they had through prestige classes. Um, I will say that Wayfinder's Guide, one of the things I really liked was was called the Envoy of Warforged. Uh, and that part of the idea is that they basically were more specialized for a particular task. Uh, you know, having, and you could have like an integrated tool. Uh, I will say that that's the kind of thing I do want to explore, is to me what I, one of the things I love about Warforge is the idea that you are created for a purpose. And part of the point then is, and do you embrace that purpose or are you taking a different path in spite of it? And uh, so mechanically, you know, there's a couple different things. Uh, I will say that certainly exploring Eberron will have a few, not a ton, but it will have a few racial feats and uh, subclasses that are specifically with that in mind, you know, that are sort of exploring things that would have been prestige classes in 3.5. Um, uh, and that's also something that I like to call out also whenever possible, are there ways to reskin existing things? Can you take the monk and say, oh, but if you're playing a shifter monk, don't think of this as martial arts. Think of this as you're enhancing your natural weaponry as you know you increase in level and sort of flavor this as a wear touch master. Uh, because the mechanical effects are my unarmed damage and my AC are increasing. Uh, that you could play that, that that is literally me physically evolving uh, to do this. So I'll be talking about sort of both of those things, you know, both how can you do this cosmetically and providing some mechanical options as well. Sure. So, what sorts of things uh, would you like to see in the future for races like Kalashar and uh, things like uh, Psionics, which have been traditionally very difficult to incorporate? It's, uh, it's definitely a very good question. 
uh, you know, one of the things that people have always asked is, well, how can you have everyone in fifth edition because there's no psionics and we have the Kalistar? And uh, certainly in Rising and in Exploring, we'll be talking about, uh, you know, how can you get some of that same flavor with what's there? You know, one of the things I'm just playing with is, well, you can actually take a Warlock, change Eldritch Blast damage to Psychic damage, and actually sort of reflavor a sort of Scion out of that. Um, I would like to see, you know, I mean, again, it is the case that Kalistar were designed because psionics were part of D&D, and this was a place that embraced those and said, if that exists, it should have a place in the world, here it is. Uh, so I don't feel that you can't have Kalistar uh, without psionics, but I do feel that it would be nice if there were psionics rules so you could fully use them to that degree. I will say that's not something that you're going to see in Rising, or as I said, in Exploring, I will certainly be talking about ways I will use the, the Kalistar, but as I said, that's not as complex as adding an entire new class or anything like that. Uh, so I'd like to explore ways to add that flavor, and I'd love to see it added if they, you know, when they get to it, but as I said, it's not happening this month, you know, this year. Then we'll work it enough. We're closing in. With uh, you talking about how extrapolating, extrapolating how uh, these different magical things will affect everything around them, yeah. and talking about the magical areas where the cities are built as natural resources, yeah. will there be mechanics or guidance on resource depletion? Uh, to some degree. I mean, it is certainly something that we've always considered, you know, in my mind, uh, it has always been the case that dragon shards are supposed to be, if you will, the oil of Eberron. That it is supposed to be that these are something that are used both for major uh, things like the lightning rail, uh, but also that any kind of magic item, to a large degree, you're using dragon shards as part of its creation. And that dragon shards are a vital part of the economy. And that's something that's always been hinted at, is that's why House of the Rashk is, is growing in power rapidly, because it's basically the oil industry. Um, but it hasn't really been explored deeply, because we've never clearly stated how important they're supposed to be. Uh, so I do hope uh, Wayfinders at least brought out the role of Dragon Shards in more detail. They will be covered in Rise. And certainly in uh, Exploring Eberron, another section that is just in the book is just a deeper look at everyday magic. You know, at, again, because that's another topic that I feel is a very critical part of Eberron that we still don't explore very much, of just, yes, there's continual flame street lamps, but like, what are other ways that just, if you're walking around the city streets, you're seeing magic in the world? And that, the more that we highlight what those services everyone relies on are, the more that we have a sense of, and this is why if we run out of dragon shards, what we're losing. So it will be something, as I said, probably more in exploring than rising, uh, but it will be something addressed. Uh, I'm gonna go for you right there. Uh, earlier in the panel, you remarked on the volume of material for Eberron. Yes. Since the release of the core book, there are a lot of novels and game books for the setting, some of which define 
portions of the world, and some of which you didn't even write. Mm -hmm. What's it like working on Eberron now, after so many other authors have placed their mark on it? Uh, you know, I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's always been the case that other authors have uh, have done things with Eberron, and others have done things that I wouldn't necessarily do. Uh, it was the case when the setting first came out, it was very clear that this was going to belong to wizards, and, you know, it's not my world. Uh, and so, like I said, there are things I do differently, you know, in my version of Eberron, and to a certain degree, that is what uh, exploring Eberron is going to be, as it's not going to be official, it's going to be, I'm telling you what I do in the oceans, you know. Um, at the same time, I try when possible not to directly contradict things other people have done, just because that feels sloppy to people who are relying on the, the core vision of the world. Uh, I will say, with that said, that something I have always said that to me is a very important principle of Eberron is that canon should be a source of inspiration, not a limitation. That you should always feel that you can change things in your campaign. You know, that you shouldn't say, well, I can't do this story because some book says that I can't. Uh, and so again, in my campaign, I will change things other authors have done that I don't agree with. Uh, working for it now, especially working in a book like Rising, we do try to hold to existing canon when possible. Although even with that said, I will say that there are a couple points in Rising uh, where we do contradict some of the previous canon because we are saying this is 15 years since Eberron came out. In some cases, we have a better idea or we have a sort of different take on things. One of the big examples that this is not a new change here, but is the Blood of All, which in third edition really comes across as, oh, we're a bunch of evil necromancers. And over the last decade, you know, I've been trying to say, no, it's more complex than that. It's not, you know, they're not all evil. Uh, and so I say that there's a couple points like that in Rise where there's things where we're like, yeah, that idea was never really as good as it could have been in the first place. And so a few things are changed. Um, but in general, where that occurs to me, it's something where I feel like it's for the better. Now, I don't know where we're at on time. Do we have to? See. We went five minutes. We can, we can wrap up a couple of bit. Okay. Uh, we have been hitting this side really hard. I feel bad because there are a bunch of people who are waiting. Uh, but I feel you uh, can handle for a while. So I had a question about uh, the morning. I know officially we're not supposed to ever, the, the morning is supposed to be decided on the DM, on the DM's world. I was wondering, would you be willing to share in your campaign what was what caused your morning? I do have to say, it would not be an Eberron uh, talk if someone did not ask, so thank you. <laughs> and the answer is no, I can't. And the reason I can't is because I've never come up with the answer. So the thing about the morning, is that the morning is a cataclysm that destroyed the nation of Seer, and that uh, we have said we are not going to answer in canon because we want you to decide. And the point is, I have, in various places, produced lists of things I think it could be. It could be House Kenneth uh, created some crazy weapon that got out of control. It could be that the Ashbound are correct, and we've used too much war magic, and this is what happens when you use too much war magic over a course of decades. It could be the release of an overlord. Uh, it could be, you know, a, a, any number of things. 
The main reason that I can't say this is what I've done in my campaign is because in my campaign, I've never had anyone solve the morning. Uh, because to me, the morning is essentially the linchpin of the current Cold War situation. That the reason the last war has stopped is because we don't know the answer and we're afraid to proceed until we do, until we know if this could happen again. If it's a weapon, can someone get that power? And the thing to me that I always tell people is if you answer it, consider the impact of that knowledge getting out. Because if the nation suddenly knew for sure it was a one-time fluke that will never happen again, there's nothing stopping the war from getting back because no one won the war. And to me, that's actually a very interesting thing to drop on players. If we suddenly hand your group that knowledge, what do you do with it? Because again, if it gets out, it will change the world. And, um, but to me, for the kind of campaigns I run, which are usually more in the war direction, it is more important to have people afraid of the morning and to have that mystery looming overhead that as a result, I've never actually had a campaign in which people have found the answer. So like I said, I could give you four random answers that it could be. Uh, in one of my novels, the Fae believe that it was just an act of sympathetic magic because someone stabbed some guy who symbolically represented Siri. Uh, and everyone else in the book says, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. And they're probably right. Um, but, but yeah, so there you go. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you uh, my answer. That is my answer. Two minutes. Uh, I'm going to go for this guy, right? I'm sorry, sir, but he's, he's been. I don't do the microphone. All right. uh, so I was wondering if you were going to go a little bit more in depth on in the interplay between the Dragon Mark houses on how they play with. They all have their defined role, but how they interplay with each other and how sometimes they try to smite each other. Unfortunately, it's not really. And so this is the thing, is that uh, Rising definitely goes deeper into a lot of the different organizations in Eberron and giving plot ideas for everything from House Tarkanen and the Boromar clan uh, to, um, you know, Lords of Dust, the Orum. It has a section for sure that is about the dragon-marked houses as a whole and discussing the impact of their actions. But, you know, it's not as detailed, like basically a, a really good, let's talk about the aspirations of the Rash versus Denith or, you know, Orion and Lirindar. Uh, that's actually just a deeper topic than, uh, than that goes into. And with exploring, it's just that's just there's so many things I could explore that that's not one that this particularly goes into. I will say that one of the next things I've been thinking about is exploring is sort of about to a large degree places, you know, and sort of cultures and things like that. Uh, I am thinking after that I may start working on a book that is more about, if you will, powers of Eberron uh, that would get to exactly that sort of thing. Um, but as I said, it's not, I think, a, really a focus. You get some of it in Rising, but it's definitely not equivalent to, say, Dragon Mark or something like that. And all right, guys, that's all the time we have for this panel. Woo! Thank you. Thank you all so much. I would say, if you see me standing around with my hat on, 
feel free to come and uh, ask me questions because I love talking about stuff. If I'm not wearing the hat, then that's leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing that knows about everyone.